episode, I speak with founder and CEO of WeSpire, Susan Hunt-Stevens. Key points addressed were the core tenets of WeSpire and their goal to help companies actualize integration and processes, increasing aspects of company values, positive work culture, sustainability, and well-being, and social impact under each company's unique purview. Stay tuned for my informative talk with Susan Hunt-Stevens. Hi, my name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series contains interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts regardless of age, status, or industry. We aim to contribute to the evolving global dialogue surrounding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to check out our subsequent series that dive deep into specific areas such as vegan life, fasting, and roundtable topics. They can be found via our website, patriciacathleen.com, where you can also join our newsletter. You can also subscribe to all of our series on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. and welcome back. I'm your host, Patricia, and today I am elated to be sitting down with Susan Hunt-Stevens. She's the founder and CEO of WeSpire. You can find out more about her and the products that we're talking about on www.wespire.com. Welcome, Susan. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to look at the services at WeSpire. We're just talking off the record and um, the endeavors that you have within that company and everything that you guys do is, is so on the market right now on trend for what I think that a lot of the economy, especially in the United States, is headed into. And I can't wait to unpack that with you. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting time, needless to say. Absolutely. Um, before we get into that, for everyone listening who might be new to this podcast, we will first um, read a bio on Susan prior to prepping her with questions. However, before I get to that, a quick roadmap so you can all follow my line of inquiry. We will first look at unpacking Susan's academic background and early professional life that led her to founding WeSpire. Then we will also look at unpacking WeSpire itself. We'll start with the logistics, the who, what, when, where, how, and why of the founding of it, um, funding, all of those things. And then we'll turn our efforts towards looking at the ethos and the philosophy of WeSpire and what the company is and stands for, as well as the utility of it and the um, different industries and audiences they serve. Then we'll look at goals that Susan has for um, this next one to three years in regards to WeSpire and perhaps herself personally. We'll wrap everything up with advice that Susan has for those of you who are looking to get involved with WeSpire or perhaps emulate some of her success. Um, as promised, before we get into questions, a quick bio. Susan Hunt-Stevens is the founder and CEO of WeSpire, an award-winning employees experience technology platform focused on engaging people in purpose-driven initiatives, ranging from sustainability to social impact, holistic well-being, and inclusive cultures. She founded WeSpire to use her digital behavior change expertise to help people embrace healthier and more sustainable lifestyles after her son was diagnosed with serious food allergies. She was named an EY Entrepreneur of the Year for New England, a Boston Business Journal Woman of Influence, and to the Environmental Leadership or Leader 100 list. Prior to WeSpire, she spent nine years at the New York Times Company, most recently as an SVP uh, General Manager for Boston.com, a $60 million digital media division. 
So Susan, that's so exciting. And I kind of actually want to start there. I'm hoping that you can unpack your academic background and professional life leading you up to the founding of WeSpire. Sure. So in high school, my passion was journalism, and I was fortunate enough to be at a high school in Spokane, Washington, with an outstanding journalism program and ended up editor of the school newspaper. I interned for ABC News. I went to college to be a journalist uh, at Wesleyan University in Connecticut and worked for National Public Radio. And then about halfway through college, uh, realized that the starting salary for a journalist and my loans didn't match and needed to figure out something else to do. Um, and so I tried one summer in government uh, working in DC and realized that was not for me. And so got into business uh, thanks to on-campus recruiting and companies coming to recruit. But I've always had this passion for impact and feeling like your job needs to make a difference in this world. And so I remember having an offer for an investment bank um, to go work in investment banking and a consulting firm that was going to try to fix healthcare. And I think, you know, most would have chosen the investment bank and I picked healthcare. And if I look at my career and when I have been happiest and most fulfilled, it has been when I feel like the job that I am doing is connected deeply to making the world a better place for people. Mm. And I have had times where that was not true. And it took having those kinds of jobs to make me realize this, this impact thread throughout my career has been a really, really key one. And so I worked in management consulting for a healthcare consulting firm uh, based in New York City, then went to business school like many people do after three to four years of management consulting. So I went to the Tuck School uh, of Business at Dartmouth. Uh, and then that is when I said, hmm, I really actually think I want to go back into journalism, and, but on the business side. And so I worked my two years in business school uh, to figure out how to get onto the business side of a journalism organization. My dream in life had been to work for the New York Times. And um, to make a very long story short, because it was not an easy path, I did manage to land uh, a job at the New York Times after business school in this thing that was just getting started called the digital side of the New York Times. They didn't even let us in the main building. We had this really rather lame office space over about four blocks away. You know, and um, at the time, there were people who would literally say out loud that they thought the internet was a fad. It was that early. Then, um, but I realized is that I got to be on the ground floor of building a digital news business as um, one of the earliest employees. And you know, one of the things that I did that will uh, connect my WeSpire experience is that uh, we wrote the very first white paper on behavioral advertising and how you can use digital behavior to target ads uh, to people and that makes them more effective and things like that. And so I uh, got to write that white paper and that really was um, an exciting place to be, New York City, early days of digital and so exciting that people start calling and asking if you want to help start new businesses and be an entrepreneur. Um, and so one of the things that uh, I did is left the New York Times after a couple of years to go be a co-founder of a startup. And that has um, 
the other connection uh, to what I'm doing now with WeSpire is I was an entrepreneur for two years. I co-founded a company with an amazing woman who is coming out of Microsoft. And we rode it to very high pinnacles and then 9-11 wiped us out literally and figuratively. Uh, we had all of our hosting and data centers in the basement of one of the World uh, Trade um, Towers and lost everything that day. But we had our lives. And um, that is something that I'm always grateful for is that I lost a startup in the context of people who lost so much more that day. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's another life lesson that you bring into entrepreneurship is as long as you're still alive and healthy, you can you can crawl back from anything. Absolutely. And similar things are happening now, you know, I think with the pandemic where I count myself amongst the lucky ones, um, even with having projects and things like that postponed and, and changed with it um, to have my health, you know, and things of that nature. I'm wondering if you can really quickly, the New York Times, um, I've spoken to a couple of people that have had affiliations and things like that, but the time period in which you were there is so iconic um, yes. for outlets, for all media, you know, the change that happened during that time period with the advent of digital changed. I mean, you know, the people still talking about the change with the advent of the internet are the news outlets. <laughs> like those are the people still talking, but nobody else even acknowledges the change anymore. So I'm wondering just really quickly, if you would um, kind of indulge us, can you describe the um, work environment? like the um the ethos yeah. i think it has a lot of mystique around it and there are a lot of people that attribute it to hollywood-esque you know moments but did you find it to be an equal opportunity workplace was it behind the times there's a lot of those industries you know um long before fox news was fox that was that was kind of the old guard there was a lot of sexism there was a lot of inequality of representation and since your current company kind of deals with these issues mm -hmm. you can speak to not the new york times now but back then yeah. with working there to that effort yeah so uh so i had my first two years at the new york times then i left and did a startup um but after 9 11 i actually went back to the new york times and i spent another seven years uh there uh, but up in boston um so what a lot of people don't realize is the new york times company actually not only owned the new york times newspaper but at the time a lot of other regional properties and one of their biggest regional properties was the boston globe and boston.com um, up here so I am extraordinarily grateful for my time at the New York Times, especially uh, once I was on the senior management team uh, in the properties because it was hindsight 2020, an incredibly progressive environment. So we had a chief diversity officer, you know, uh, at this point I was there, this would have been 17 years ago, who was really working to ensure that the company broadly had a very good career pathing for women and underrepresented minorities. And, and our, our CEO at the time, Janet Robinson is female, um, our head of advertising is female. So I had really strong female role models um, in, in the company for, for leadership. Um, in fact, the person I came to work for in Boston uh, became the chief customer officer for the New York Times. She's amazing. And so I feel like as a female executive, I had three women at least, if not more, that I could look to who were just really, really amazing people and really good at their jobs and who were navigating, to your point, uh, a company through just a extraordinarily painful transformation process as you know, the digital side was growing 
but the economics of the ad model are just completely different. Um, the economics on the consumer side were very different. You know, when I was there, um, we weren't charging for any of the content in either location. Uh, you know, ads, uh, you know, per impression costs, even in digital were starting to get disrupted uh, by ad networks and things like that. And so you were seeing this switch from print to digital, but what was falling apart was the business model at its core. And being in an industry where a business model is falling apart is, is really challenging. Um, some people, you know, embrace that, that change and can really navigate through it and other people just implode. Uh, and I saw both happen. Um, but what I was always convinced of in my heart of heart and still am today is that the world needs journalism organizations like the New York Times. And anyone on the business side who worked there had to be committed to this idea that if we don't figure out how to keep what our newsroom does alive, irregardless of which format it's in, then who is gonna give a voice to people who don't have one? Who is gonna stand and check the power of businesses um, who may be doing things that they shouldn't be doing or governments that sh are doing things that they shouldn't be doing? And so it was a very mission-driven business organization in my experience um, who really felt like we had to figure this out in some way, shape or form. And mm. what was interesting about being at the Times versus a regional property is that the idea of charging for the content was incredibly challenging and political. And there were people who wanted to and people who didn't want to and all of this, but there was always this sense that what the Times did was truly unique and therefore very chargeable. I think when you started to look at the regional properties, it, 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 was, a, it, was, a much, it was a harder set of numbers to run. Um, they didn't come out as strong, you know? And so it was, I actually think it's a harder decision. It was a harder decision to uh, charge at the regional properties than it was for the New York Times. Um, yeah. you know, and then the New York Times has been extraordinarily successful at it um, and has proven you can do it, which is great. Um, but I think some of the regional properties are still struggling. You know, there's a, a lot of free substitutes to regional news. Well, and everything needs to be, um, I think, measured when it comes to the evaluation of something like that against a different metric. And I think it's the similar, you know, concept of real estate trying to tar, um, develop numbers uh, for like houses that are incredibly different, you know, and, and yeah. it on these very disparate characteristics and everything has to be, um, I think, each unique metric unto itself, especially when it comes to something like a powerhouse like the Times that's still being kind of tweeted about by our president from time to time. So, um, Which just means it's having an impact. <laughs> they weren't having an impact, it wouldn't upset people so much. Um, but it's been, you know, the one thing I did get to do um, when I was at Boston, uh, at the Boston Globe at Boston.com is Marty Barron, who is the editor now at the Washington Post, was the editor here. And he was an incredibly forward-thinking editor about digital uh, and really was a strong partner for me on the digital side. And so, you know, there was never a question about, you know, time and energy and resources being put into digital. And he really encouraged his team to embrace digital and to think about what digital reporting does and can look at. And so I think so much of that time is who did you get to work with and were they 
resistant to what digital could do or did they see digital as a new opportunity for storytelling? Absolutely. And um, what a world that changed without maybe even having the foresight of that. I want to turn now to unpacking WeSpire and I want to start with the logistics. So if you can tell us when it was founded, who were the, uh, the original founder, if it was you, other co-founders, um, additional sub-founders, things of that nature. And did you take funding when you initially started uh, or was it bootstrapped? Yeah. So in, I left uh, the New York Times company in the fall of 2009, and then WeSpire was officially incorporated in February of 2010. Um, and my co-founder was Jason Butler, who I had worked with at Boston.com. And then a few months later, uh, another woman, Sarah Finney Robinson, joined the team as one of the members of the founding sort of group of people sitting around my uh, dining room table. And uh, the vision originally was that we were gonna create essentially, you know, Runkeeper or Strava or Weight Watchers for sustainability, an app that you would use to motivate and inspire yourself to be more sustainable, to reduce energy and waste and eat healthier from an organic and pesticide standpoint and things like that. And for about 18 months, that's what we did. We launched on um, Mother's Day 2010, uh, because we thought moms would be the ones that would be most interested in being sustainable. Uh, we had some amazing partnerships with people like NBC Universal and Real Simple and others. And, uh, you know, really we're excited to see some explosive growth in the early days. And then we got into this really cool incubator space. Uh, but we were bootstrapping this entire time. And then a Right after we signed the partnership with NBC Universal, I did raise a seed round of capital from Converge Venture Partners here in Boston, which is a syndicate. It's a fund with a syndicate of most of the high tech successful CEOs and founders. So it's really this idea of founders funding founders. Um, and it was. Was that 2011, 2012 when the seed round? That was the fall of 2010. Okay, so you launched. Yeah. 2010 and then seed round after seed round after we launched yeah yeah exactly so right after the partnership with NBC launched in in um, November and it was around that time at the end of 2010 but the challenge was that by 2011 I kind of knew this model wasn't going to work I had spent a long time in digital consumer products I knew what you needed to have from a viral coefficiency, you know, how many users invite other users. And it, we had really high people loving the app, but really low recommending it to others. So we did a bunch of consumer insights. And basically what we learned is that people were hesitant to recommend the program, even though they liked it for themselves to others, because they thought people would think they were judging their lifestyle or that they were a hippie liberal. Or it'd be like telling somebody they need to go to Weight Watchers. You could maybe say that to your sister or your mom or your best friend um, in a loving way, but you really can't broadcast it widely. But when you lose weight, people see it and then say, what did you do? You know, um, And then you have permission to tell them, well, when you are now buying organic chicken, nobody knows. You know, When you've just turned down the thermostat on your water heater, nobody, you know, this isn't something you see when you're being more sustainable. So we didn't have that same we had the stigma, but not the benefit of the visible changes. So um, I almost shut it down. <laughs> I literally had this month where I was just grumpy. Um, but we got on um, 
we, we were able to, um, on Earth Day 2011, um, got on to NBC and thought, okay, this is going to be it. You know, we're going to, this is going to give us thousands and thousands of users. And it didn't. It got us, you know, a few thousand, but not what we would have hoped. Yeah. Uh, but the phone started ringing and it was companies asking if we had an enterprise version of our sustainability program um, that they could use with their employees. And so after, you know, the first call, you kind of ignore the second one. You're like, huh? By the third call, I'm a big believer in three. By the third call, I'm like, all right, maybe there's a there there. And so I uh, started interviewing um, chief sustainability officers and companies, thanks to some folks that have been helping us and some investors who knew people. And sure enough, companies, uh, forward thinking and kind of early companies like Seventh Generation and Organic Valley and folks were really struggling with employee engagement in sustainability and needed tools and a technology to help them do it um, that could measure the impact and tell them the benefit that their employees doing these things were having. And that's what we did. So we did the classic pivot, um, which I think happens a lot 18 months in to, uh, to founders and decided to focus on running enterprise sustainability programs. And that's what we did exclusively from 2012 to 2016, uh, is just run you know, large global companies from Disney to Caesars to eBay and others on their sustainability engagement programs. What techniques do you use? Because I understand the ethos and the philosophy of what you're talking about, but um, as far as the action items and, you know, and I'm also putting it into latter day times, this is back in 2011, you know, I'm putting it in 2020 times when you would start a Twitter campaign or launch a YouTube campaign or something of that nature. What did yep. back then? Yeah. So the whole behavior change component of WeSpire is really based on some of the science and research that's come, come out of BJ Fogg's lab at Stanford on persuasive technology. And these techniques are most notably used in a lot of the social media apps. And the idea is that we combine a combination of game mechanics so and social mechanics and targeted personalized content to essentially close the gap between intent and action. Um, and so it not only helps you understand in a, in a specific um, pathway what the different micro choices are. So say you're wanting to you know, eat less meat or eat more plants. Um, you know, what are the different decision points that you need to be thinking about? What are the different actions that you can take? That's the first piece, but then we have a point system so you understand which of these is most impactful. Do I want to do something that has a lot of impact or, you know, something that has smaller impact? And then as you do them, you are in points. And as you do it more, you are in achievements that give you a sense of accomplishment, you know, a pat on the back. And then the social mechanics, you can see who else has done it. And when you see that a lot of other people have done something, it makes it so it's not so impossible. And then when you do it and somebody likes it and gives you a positive comment, you know, keep this up or you can share your story or things. What we see is that motivates people to keep doing more. So there's a lot of behavioral science behind how each of these campaigns, competitions, or even events and idea boards is designed. Um, but it can be that template, that behavior design template can be used for any sort of behavior change that you're wanting to make. And we sort of joke that at its core, WeSpire is about you know, helping people be better and helping humans make more positive choices. And we've chosen to focus now in four areas, sustainability, social impact, well-being, and inclusive culture, but it could be applied to almost anything. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering, um, this, this, do you have an algorithm that you employ or did you just look at the Stanford research? So it, it, um, this idea of looking at chain of commands, you know, these micro choices that kind of um, end up in fruition to this end goal, this backtracking, if you will, I think it's been employed across industry mm-hmm. for years to great effect. And, um, it's one frequently overlooked, I think with, um, social media can be a tool or it can be a distraction, you know, and a lot of people have this miscommunication where they just immediately go to it before doing this kind of reverse action that it looks like you guys are doing. Do you have an algorithm that you currently plug in for companies once you've actually kind of crystallized the goal of the area that they need to reach out in or what they want to do personally that kind of develop this game plan, this roadmap, if you will, of what needs to happen? Or is it just research that you look at in order to form your own techniques? Yeah, so there's um, there's algorithms kind of all over the platform that make the right things happen at the right time to get people to take action. And so baked into the, you know, the whole user experience is a lot of personalization that's driven by algorithms, a lot of understanding what content needs to be shown at what time, what triggers need to be sent at what time to make things happen. So there's a lot around that. But in terms of the actual, what we we, we don't want is we don't want our customers who are largely you know, program managers inside big global companies to have to suddenly become behavior designers. Um, that's a complicated field. And so what we did is we baked all the behavior design elements automatically into the templates. They know what they want their people to do. They know generally that, you know, they're trying to drive energy efficiency and the seven things in this role, in this plant, or in this property for these housekeepers is that it's this set of activities. What they didn't know is how to order them in a way that, that, got people moving um, and getting them the right feedback so that they could do more than they ever expected from the beginning. And then they get the sense of uh, satisfaction and achievement that comes from active participation in the program. And so what we say is that um, we use social mechanics, but it's not social media per se. It's much more like what you would use in a game, you know? So I don't know if, um, if any of your listeners are big Overwatch players or Destiny or Worlds of Warcraft or things like that, but all those mechanics that you see or even Mario Kart of, you know, um, having levels and having quests and having challenges and having points and having ceremonies, all of that is our, our game mechanics and social mechanics of what you're doing with people. And we use those same kinds of things. We're just wrapping them around real life behaviors as opposed to behaviors in a game. Yeah, absolutely. And it's exciting. I mean, looking at it from that standpoint, you know, those are really measurable statistics too that you can absolutely you can alter and tweak and um, really, I feel like when you can take a process and make it more uniquely suited to an um, individual company, the more successful the process, this out of the can, out of the box moment is um, destined to be flat as far as figures or yield or social impact return is, you know, which is all of this. Well, and one of the biggest ahas I have, and I know it taps a little bit into your background, um, and I'll never forget the day I was, I was driving down from Santa Barbara to go to the uh, airport in LA, and I was coming through the Hollywood Hills, and one of the things that we were thinking about at that time were our programs, you know, the actual um, campaigns that uh, people were running on the platform, because when we first started, they were just actions. 
And then it was like, well, these actions need themes and campaigns. So then it was the pathways with the actions. Um, and one of the things I thought about was the studio approach, uh, which is that, you know, no, no, no one could start a studio just for one movie. You know, a studio to survive needed to be a specialist in making lots of different movies and things like that. And you didn't necessarily know what the public was going to want or what the interests were going to be and things like that. But you had to kind of design it to um, to create these different things. And then these campaigns could have authors, just like there's different directors and different producers and things like that. And what that gave us was really this idea that the content library of these behavioral programs should be a library that is open to all of our customers. And when they use the tools to design their own custom campaign, they should be given a choice. They can keep it private to themselves or they can share it back into the library and get credit for this great campaign that they just created that others can run. And so one of the things that's been really just fascinating to see is how customers, when they create something really successful, are very willing to share it to other customers and let them use it, who then tweak and edit it and can put it back in. And so um, not only when you license the platform, you're getting access to these great tools to create these great content, but you're gaining access to the expertise of those who have gone before you and been successful. And you can modify and edit, you know, because some people will use the word associates and others team members and things like that. So you can always make those tweaks or modifications, but you're not starting from scratch every time. Absolutely. I'm wondering, given that, and, and it sounds like it's this ever-growing platform and with the advent of the, which has got to affect the verbiage for all of your clients on the, you know, COVID-19 pandemic and the inclusivity of acknowledging reality has reached every industry I've spoken to, regardless of what one thinks of the applicability or not. Ignoring it is alienating someone's reality, I think, at this yeah, point. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, moving forward, what are some of the goals that you are employing with WeSpire or recommending that your clients kind of look at in shaping their particular reach or expanse or their own personal kind of um, social choices? Sure. So I'm going to paint a picture of what kind of our world was like immediately prior to COVID and then how COVID has influenced that. So we've been doing this for 10 years, but candidly, it was a niche business that was very small. Um, there were certainly companies that were embracing sustainability and all of these things, but they tended to be large companies. The teams were understaffed, underfunded. Um, but with the advent of the UN SDGs, um, which really started to gain more momentum in 2017, we started to see companies coming together around this idea of responsibility and purpose. And they were bringing together these teams that had been really siloed. Um, so we'd been working with sustainability for years, but now the sustainability officer was having responsibility for their social impact efforts, their inclusivity efforts, and often even well-being and things like that. And so we are seeing this consolidation in the enterprise. And then in the last 12 months, um, whether it's been the letter that BlackRock has sent to all their portfolio companies about the importance of purpose or Jamie Dimon and the business roundtables saying that business needs to have a purpose in addition to profit, the rise of ESG investing, there's just been this tailwind into people understanding the importance of purpose and therefore activating purpose in their enterprise like I had not seen in 10 years. So we came into COVID thinking 2020 was just going to be the most amazing year ever. Um, then COVID hit 
Yeah. But what was really fascinating to me um, is, is, you know, we obviously went remote. Every single one of our clients went remote. Some of our clients, everybody got furloughed because they were hospitality organizations or auto manufacturing. Um, but digital engagement now became the only way of reaching your employees. And they had to engage and get them doing things related to health and safety, uh, managing stress and, stress and anxiety, remote work best practices. And so we thanks to our clients, we're sitting there with the right tools at the right place and the right time to design these campaigns and programs to get their employees doing the things they absolutely needed them to do during COVID. And so we've been almost counter cyclical in the sense that, you know, um, yes, we got hurt by clients shutting down and not having any employees to charge for, but we also had these clients who were like, we need you up and running in two weeks and we need to launch this fund to do employee assistance in two weeks. So we need to launch this giving campaign or we need to launch this thing. And just as life was calming down, all of a sudden the George Floyd uh, protests began and companies started responding and acknowledging that they had not been doing enough to build inclusive cultures and to create an anti-racist workplace. And we are sitting with a whole module that's uh, around in reducing implicit bias, increasing allyship, uh, and all these programs we work to create immediately for several clients, um, you know, an anti-racist workplace program, and have been now beginning to work with them wanting to fundraise for donations to racial equity organizations. And so there's been, you know, in another module now, um, a, a lot of, of momentum and change. And so, you know, what, what it's done, in my opinion, is pulled forward the future by five years. Um, if you had asked me where organizations were going to be feeling about remote work, digital engagement, equity and inclusion, mental health, uh, you know, and, um, and then sustainability just continues to be more urgent and pressing, given we have very little time left uh, to cut 50% of carbon emissions. So 2025 has started to happen in 2020, uh, at least, you know, for, for these kinds of programs. What are the future goals for what you're doing with WeSpire? Like now that you, you feel like there's been this hyper consideration, what are the future goals? Yeah, so I have believed from day one that at some point in time, every company of any significant size was gonna need a technology platform like WeSpire. Having come out of marketing and seen this transition in the you know, 2000 to 2010 around marketing automation platforms, companies have not had something to do this level of sophisticated engagement and behavior change with metrics that prove business value for their employee efforts. And we're, so I have just felt like this category was gonna emerge. I've been speaking about it for eight years, mostly to small groups of people. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's really about how do I take us from being a relatively small organization with the right product, the right customer base, into something that you know can service uh, you know the global demand that I think is going to be there, and so I'm looking very closely at you know who do you partner with, who do you raise capital from, um, when do you do it? Because I also believe fully that we are not out of this anytime soon, and the economic dislocation that's going to occur over the next few years is going to be profound. And so you know um, I 
lost a business after 9-11. I managed a media business in the middle of the Great Recession. You know, this, uh, this, uh, this next few years is going to be tough for everyone. Um, and we need, so we need to be prepared to work with the right people who understand that and yet recognize that by 2030, you know, this will just be a default piece of technology in every major workplace. Exciting. Lofty. It is exciting. It is exciting. It's just, how do you make it happen? <laughs> it's the challenge is an entrepreneur. Right. Um, well, Susan, we're running out of time and I wanted to kind of wrap up today with asking you um, an inquiry that I have for most people that I speak with on this particular series. And that is if someone approached you from a safe social distance tomorrow or the day after, and it was a young woman or a female identified a non-binary individual and they came up to you and said, I'm so glad I found you. I wanted to ask you, we have a friend in common and um, I've spent the early part of my career, the bulk of it actually, you know, in this heavily steeped media and news company as it went through one of its most important transitions throughout all of history. And now I'm looking to go out on my own and um, I've got this great co-founder I'm thinking about a startup with. What are the top three pieces of advice you would give that individual knowing what you know now? So the first would be to uh, keep your day job as long as possible um, while validating your hypothesis with a test group of users. Uh, one of the most important things I did with um, WeSpire was 100 users, we called them the motherboard, um, and we, we started with proto, you know, paper prototypes of what we we're going to do and put it in front of them and got feedback. And then we built a really, really light prototype and put it in front of them and got feedback. And, you know, um, and I was still consulting on the side and bringing in because I didn't know. And I don't think anyone knows until you start to put a new product or solution into somebody's hands, whether you have a there there. And I think if you talk to most entrepreneurs, they pivot. You know, you don't. Your first idea usually, I guess that's my second piece of advice. Keep working because your first idea may not be the one that sticks, but if you have the right people around you and you're passionate about the problem you're solving, not necessarily the product you've come up with to solve that problem, but if you're passionate about the problem, just keep going. You will find a way to solve that problem that will work. Um, and then my third is, um, is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. I speak somewhat frequently about the prevailing messages that come from tech media in particular, but I think all startup media, which is that we glamorize the successes, we generally tell the stories of those where it was an, you know, a relatively instant hit and three to four years, you're a unicorn. And that is not most entrepreneurial journeys. The vast majority of entrepreneurial journeys are slow, long, painful processes of twists and turns and navigations. Yeah. And you only hear about the company once they hit that inflection point. And you don't hear about the eight years it took to get there. And so, yeah. you know, sign up for and realize that this is a marathon. And so take care of yourself, um, take care of your family, and realize that um, what, what you want to enjoy is the journey of being an entrepreneur, not just the destination of having a successful business. Absolutely. All right. I've got keep your day job while testing your idea, number one. Number two, surround yourself with people and be prepared to pivot. Uh, keep the problem alive, but don't be overly married to the product. And number three, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a game of endurance and pay attention to your quality of life while you go along that marathon. Perfect. 
I love that so much. Well, Susan, thank you so much for coming on and giving us all of your information. I know you're busy. Everyone's at once these days kind of home, but twice as busy. And I really appreciate your time. So true. <laughs> it is so true. Exactly. Well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to be here. Absolutely. And for all of you listening, thank you so much for giving us your time today. And until we speak again next time, remember to always bet on yourself. Slunch it.